Shabbat shalom, everyone. I, uh, this is the first time giving a full sermon, so bear with me. I'm going to try to stretch this out as long as I can. Uh, you all bow with me. Father Yahweh, we come before you on your beautiful Sabbath day. Father, we thank you for the many blessings you give us every single day. We thank you for the fellowship that we have here. It's all because of your commandment, Father, your blessing on us that we're here today, Father. We, we thank you so much for everything you do for us. We pray that the rest of this service is a sweet incense to you, Father, that this message I speak be your words and not my own, and that we can have a new appreciation for you before it's over, Father. We pray and ask all this in Yeshua's name. Hallelujah. Let me turn this on here. There it is. So the title of my sermon is The Sorrow of Yahweh. It's a, it's a message on Hosea. And I've always kind of had a soft spot for um, the minor prophets. Simply because they're called minor prophets makes me like them even more because it gives the implication that there's less to them. I don't really feel like the name, the title they're given really does them justice. I almost look at them kind of like an underdog. And everybody likes a good underdog story, you know. They're, they don't, they're not taken seriously at first, and then you look into them more, invest more into them, and you realize that there's a lot more to them than what first meets the eye. Um, the short books, the Minor Prophets, they contain vast amounts of information. Everything from past, present, and future times, the prophecies. Um, there's themes of anger, jealousy, wrath, peace, grace, mercy, love, and everlasting life, all within the Minor Prophets. Today I'm only going to focus on one, uh, Hosea. And unlike many of the Minor Prophets, Hosea is a little bit more unique. Not that they aren't unique in their own right, but the theme of the Minor Prophets is doom and gloom, which is you know fine because a lot of times that's what people need to hear. But Hosea's kind of got a little bit of a different, um, different outlook on things, and I really appreciate it. Um, much of the time, Hosea is a beautiful story of redemption, forgiveness, love, and salvation by the mercy and grace of Yahweh. And I'll be looking at the first half or so of the book. I'm not going to be able to get through the whole thing. And I say for time's sake, I'm hoping it's for time's sake. I wouldn't be able to get through it all today. Um, the message delivered is not only a stark contrast, is not the only stark contrast to be seen either. For example, in Amos, which is one of my favorite books, I go to it a lot um, when dealing with people outside of the ministry asking questions. It's a pretty grim book. It really, it really is. We have a few glimpses of the scenery of Israel, and these are always flashes of lightning and judgment. And, and uh, as I said before, doom and gloom. Towns are in distress. There's earthquakes and sieges, and vineyards are under mildew and locusts. And it's just really, it's a really wrathful book. I mean, uh, compare this with Hosea, and you have Israel, who Yahweh is bending over backwards to help. A nation undeserving of the love and devotion that Yahweh gives them. A nation dead in its whoredom, restoring them to his side where, they, where he has always wanted them to be from the very beginning. The book honestly starts off with a bang. There's some... As uh, Brother Jose said, sometimes Yahweh has his, has his prophets do some unusual things to get the point across the bigger picture for people like us today. Verse 1 and 2, 
I'll have most of the uh, most of the verses up on screen, but I encourage you to follow along in your Bible as well, because it's always good to know where and how to get to these books. The word of Yahweh came to Hosea, son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. The beginning of Yahweh speaking, excuse me, the beginning of Yahweh speaking by Hosea, and Yahweh said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of adultery and children of adultery, for the land has utterly gone lusting away from Yahweh. He's not wasting any time getting to the point, I don't think. The book goes on. So he went and took Gomer, daughter of, I, I struggled with his name when I was writing this, Dibliam, Dibliam, and conceived and bore him a son. And Yahweh said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel on the house of Jehu, and cause the kingdom of the house of Israel to cease. And it shall be that the day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And Elohim said to him, Call her name Luhama, or no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and will save them by Yahweh their Elohim, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. And when she had weaned, weaned Lurama, she conceived and bore a son. And he said, Call his name Loami, or not my people, for you are not my people, and I will not be before you, or before you. Yet the number of the sons of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured, nor numbered. And it shall be in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are the sons of the living Elohim. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel shall be gathered together, and shall, shall set over themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Talk about uh, kind of a tough love for Hosea here. I mean, imagine being a faithful witness of Yahweh your entire life, and then all of a sudden Yahweh talks to you and says, Go marry a harlot. Go marry a woman of adultery and conceive some children with her. I mean, that would be, I mean, an uncomfortable situation to say the least. And the names Hosea and Gomer were commanded to give these children are also, I mean, not only do you have to go out and marry a woman of adultery and conceive these children, but then you have to give them names that mean, frankly, terrible things. Let's take a quick look at these names just one more time. First, we have Jezreel. Elohim will sow. Next, we have Loruhama, no mercy. Many versions of the Bible, if you read that, actually does not even have Loruhama in there. It just says no mercy. I mean, it's a, it's a very literal name. Enough so that the translators actually translated it as the meaning of the name. And then and lastly, we have Loami, meaning not my people. Again, translations have this name as actually not my people. It's obvious Yahweh is pretty upset with Israel, and he was completely done with their fornication and with their harlotry. Um, the Expositor's Bible Commentary has some... I've got a several commentaries I'm going to be using throughout this. The Expositor's Bible Commentary states, It is not surprising... 
that diverse interpretations have been put upon this troubled tale. The words which introduce it are so startling that many have held it to be an allegory or parable or invented by the prophet to illustrate by familiar human figures what was at that period the still difficult conception of the love of G.O.D. For sinful men. But to this well-intended argument there are, are inseparable objections. It implies that Hosea had first awakened to the relations of Yahweh or the L-O-R-D and Israel. He, faithful and full of affection, she, unfaithful and thankless. And that then, in order to illustrate the relations, he had invested the story. To that, we have an adequate reply. In the first place, though, though it were possible, it is extremely improbable that such a man should have invented such a tale about his wife, or, if he was unmarried, about himself. But in the second place, he says expressly that his domestic experience was the beginning of Yahweh's word with him. That is, he passed through it first, and only afterwards, with the sympathy and insight thus acquired, he came to appreciate G.O.D.'s relation to Israel. Finally, the style betrays the narrative rather than parable. The simple facts are told. There is an absence of elaboration. There is no effort to make every detail symbolic. The names Gomer and Diblium are apparently those of real people. Every attempt to attach symbolic value to them has been failed. So a lot of times, what I'm getting at there is a lot of times people read Hosea and they say, well, this is an allegory. This is simply metaphor. And that's typically the response of people that don't want to look too deep into something. And sometimes the Bible is not always flower and rainbows as we know. Sometimes it makes you uncomfortable to read what is written, and I think it's supposed to. Because it's, it's, easy, it's easier to make a point when you've got a hard-hitting topic like this. It was a very real situation that Hosea went through. But as we know, in the end, Israel will yield the fruit of love for Yahweh, as Yahweh never gives up on his people. He's always been in the process of guiding them back. I mean, it's got to be tiring. From Since Adam, they have been struggling, and there he is, guiding them so patient, so benevolent, constantly. Chapter 2 continues to chastise Israel for her behavior. And I'm only going to touch on a verse here and there, because I'm not going to go through, I'm not going to read the entire chapter of, of this entire book. But I believe I can get the point across in, in, in these few verses. Verses 1 through 3 state, Say to your brothers, a people, and to your sisters, mercy, contend. Contend with your mother, for she is not my wife. This is Yahweh speaking to Hosea, telling these people to go out. And the mother here is Israel. These people need to go out and speak to Israel. Let her therefore put away her fornications out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her out as in the day that she was born, and, I, and lest I make her as the wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. Yahweh is telling Hosea to warn his brothers and sisters to plead with their mother, i.e. Israel, to plead with her to stop her fornication and idolatry. Otherwise, Yahweh is going to destroy her. It's that simple. If like he's he wants nothing more than to save his people, but if his people won't play ball, neither will he. He's got to have. There's always a remnant that Yahweh is able to work with from every generation. That's why he keeps coming back. It's not like he they've they've completely failed. Israel has failed as a nation, but there are always those few that hang tight 
to his word and to his truth. And those are the people they're going out to contend with. I think up to this point, Yahweh was hopeful that Israel would come back on her own. I mean, he provided their every need, everything they could ever want. And at this moment, I believe Yahweh had had enough. He knew he had to step in on her behalf, whether she liked it or not, honestly. And Yahweh goes on through verses 4 through 10, And I will, have no mer- I, will have, I will not have mercy on her sons, for they are the sons of adultery. For their mother has prostituted herself. She who conceived them has done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge your way with thorns and wall up her wall, or wall up her wall that she will not find her paths. And she shall flow, she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. She shall see them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better with me than now. For she did not know that I gave her grain and the wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. So I will return and take my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will recover my wool and my flax to cover her nakedness. And I will uncover her shamefulness in the sight of her lovers, and none shall deliver her out of my hand. Yahweh is giving Israel a very simple choice. Return to him, or he's done with you. He's done with you. And that, and that, is, a, that is quite the statement coming from Yahweh. Because Yahweh is infinitely patient with his people, for the most part. He knew he had to block off the path, the wall up her paths, and stop her with thorns. Otherwise, she, he, he knew Israel would never return. Because they would continue to give credit for Yahweh's works to their other mighty ones that they were whoring after. He knew that if he didn't stop blessing them, stop her from going further, they would never return. He still wanted to have her back, though. That's, I mean, that's quite the devotion. Imagine being with your husband or your wife, and no matter what you did, every good deed you did, no matter what it was, they gave the credit to somebody else that they were interested in, no matter what it was. And you, the other one, sitting there pining after them, wanting nothing more than to express the love that you can't express. I mean, that's a, that's a sad, sad reality. He also knew he would have to remove Israel's blessings so that she could see clearly who provided them. As seen in verse 9 and 10, sometimes that's how it works. Sometimes a blessing can be a blinder. And that's a hard thing to accept for a lot of people. People assume, I think I heard Brother Bannock speak on it one time, said, I'm blessed, I must be doing something right. Sometimes. Sometimes. A blessing can be a blinder, and we know the only way to see clearly is to remove the blessing. Israel needed to be reminded of who is delivering the blessings in their life. Just like we do. You know, we get content, we get comfortable. Or as my mom likes to say, we get fat and sassy, and we just sit around, and it's easy, at that point, it's easy to just assume Yahweh's going to do everything for you. How many of us would put up with the things that Yahweh puts up with? Day to day, month to month, week to week, year to year, generation to generation, it's always the same. An unfaithful people, always looking for the easy way out. I saw an interesting image on the 
on the internet the other day, and it showed a design for a park. And here's the path, right? Beautiful, easy to walk on, easy path. I mean, it's, it's wide enough, it's big enough for everybody, it's very comfortable, it's shaded, it's well-maintained, and it goes and makes a corner like this. And wouldn't you know it, people cut across that corner, and it's all worn out and dirty right there, but everybody's walking on that path. Not the way that's set up for you, not the way that's designed, not the way that's intended. And they just cut that corner every time. Hundreds of people every day. Our problems are often really petty when placed next to the problems that we cause Yahweh every single day. I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit to verses 14 through 23. Therefore, behold, I will lure her and bring her to the wilderness and speak comfortably to her. I will give her vineyards from, uh, to her from there in the valley of Accor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be that day, says Yahweh, you shall call me my husband and shall no more call me my Baal. That alone is extremely interesting to me. But, for I will take away the names of, of the Baals out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day I will cut a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the birds of the heavens and with the creeping things of the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and I will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth you to me forever. Yea, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know Yahweh. And it will be in that day I will answer, says Yahweh. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall hear the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. Elohim will sow. And I will sow to her, I will sow her to me in the earth, and I will have mercy on no mercy, or Lurama. And I will say to Loami, not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, my Elohim. The, the, it's easy to look at this passage and say, wow, Yahweh's being extremely poetic. He's being very philosophical with all this, very optimistic. But to every Israelite that heard this message from Hosea, it had to bring back a yearning for the days of their forefathers, the people that left Egypt, that had Yahweh right there with them the whole time. The pillar of fire by night, the, the pillar of cloud by day, on the mountain, there he was, delivering the commandments. They were very connected. They were so close to Yahweh at that point. It had to, it had to stir up some feelings in them. It says, I will speak home, speak home to her heart, it's a forcible expression. This message pulled at their heartstrings. And Yahweh knew this message would cause his people to pine for him as he pines for them. And that's a key thing to understand. A lot of people put Yahweh as this far away distant figure that is separated, that is an impossibility. And no, a lot of, many people believe in a creator. He's so far away in their minds that it's hard for them to believe he's real in a lot of cases. But Yahweh is, he works with his people very closely. I mean, just read the story of the Exodus, as we did today. I'm so glad we read that chapter, because it tied in perfectly. 
It said in Exodus 26 that he was, he was, uh, he showed his loving kindness, his endless mercy, his faithfulness. How wonderful is Yahweh! Look at what he deals with. How we betray him every single day, and look how beautifully and perfectly he loves us. No matter how far and consistently Israel falls, he was always one step ahead. Every single time, he was always one step ahead. He knew that if he, if he didn't get out in front of her, he'd never get her back. Figuring out how he could save the one he loves from destruction. Every time he gets close, they rebel even harder and fall even further. further. Every single time. But he's always one step ahead. So here we kind of have a circle that's been completed. In the first few chapters of Hosea, we can see where we started. We had the three names which Yahweh gave, Israel, gave uh, Gomer and uh, Hosea to name their children. No mercy, not my people, and Elohim will. So we can see it's kind of reversed now. Yahweh has shown them that the, he, they will be his people. He will have mercy, and he will sow this righteousness in them. Chapter 3 goes on to explain the feelings that Yahweh has during this redemption period. And Yahweh said to me, go again. Love a woman, beloved by a friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of Yahweh towards the sons of Israel, who turn to other Elohim and love raisin cakes of grapes. So I have brought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for a homer of barley and a half homer of barley. And I said to her, you shall abide for me many days. You shall not be a harlot, nor be for a man. And I also will be for you. For the sons of Israel shall live many days with no king and no ruler, with no sacrifice, with no pillars, and no ephod, and no teraphim. Afterwards, the sons of Israel shall return and seek Yahweh their Elohim and David their king. And they shall fear Yahweh and his goodness in the end of days. Yahweh knew he had asked Hosea to do a hard thing. There is some debate whether or not this is still Gomer, the, the woman that it's talking about back in verse, um, the love of woman beloved by a friend. There's, there is some debate whether or not that is still Gomer or whether it is another woman. Uh, Kyle and uh, Delich, I think I'm saying that right, that's another commentary, states, the woman is characterized as beloved of her companion or friend and committing adultery. The Hebrew denotes a friend or companion with whom one cherishes intercourse and fellowship, never a fellow creature generally, not just anybody, but simply the fellow creature with whom one lives in the closest intimacy. So this is, and Kyle and Delich actually had the Hebrew on the page, but I didn't know what it, like the Hebrew meant, so I just took it off for the sake of simplicity because, but it's there in their commentary if you look it up. So this isn't just, this shows me that this is not simply another woman. This is somebody who he, whom, he is, whom he already loves, which leads me to believe it's more than likely um, Gomer, in my opinion. So Yahweh wanted Hosea not just to love this woman, but to complete, be completely in love with her. Yet he wanted them to abstain from the relations of the marriage, just as Yahweh has to be separate from his beloved, so Hosea needed to be separate from his. Now, imagine that. Imagine you're married, you have your, your husband or your wife, and you're never able to fully express that love that you have. 
Because that's what the intimacy is. The two flesh become one, and it's an expression of the love that you share, that Yahweh blessed a man and woman with. Now imagine that you have that relationship with a, with a husband or a wife, but you can't do anything about it. You can't. That's, what you're, that's where Yahweh's at right now. His people are off doing their own thing, and here he is waiting very patiently for her to come home, essentially, and be with him. He wanted, he wanted Hosea to understand the pain he was going through, which is why the request was so unusual to begin with, because he, wanted, he needed to have a woman that he, whom he loved be an adulterer, just like Yahweh loves Israel, who is an adulterer. He, he needed to paint that picture for his people because sometimes you have to draw it out as if we're all three years old because that's the only way we understand it. The expositor's commentary has another gem on these verses. This is a little bit of a wall of text. I apologize, but it's, it's worth it, I promise. Do not let us miss the fact that the story of the wife's restoration follows that of Israel's. The parallel is there. Although the story of the wife's unfaithfulness had come before that of Israel's apostasy in the timeline of things. For this order means that while the prophet's private pain preceded his sympathy with G.O.D.'s pain, it was not he who set G.O.D., but G.O.D. who set him. The example of forgiveness. The man learned Elohim's sorrow out of his own sorrow, but conversely, he was taught to forgive and redeem his own wife only by seeing Yahweh forgive and redeem the people. In other, in other words, the divine was suggested by the human pain, yet the divine grace was not stated or started by any previous human grace, but on the contrary, was itself the precedent and origin of the latter. This is in harmony with all of Hosea's teachings. G.O.D. forgives because he is G.O.D. and not man. Our pain with those we love helps us understand G.O.D.'s pain. But it is not our love that leads us to believe in his love. On the contrary, all human grace is but the reflex of the divine. So Paul, even as the Messiah forgave you, do also, so also do ye. And so John, so we love him and one another because he first loved us. He did all this, not, not just to, to help save his own bride, but you know, to bless Hosea as well, to get, allow him to understand his thought process. And as Isaiah tells us, his thoughts are far above ours. I mean, why would, if it was up to a human, if it was up to a, a mere man to wait as patiently as he does, this would have ended disastrously a long, long time ago. Probably at the very beginning, honestly. He probably, if it was, if we had our mindset, his mindset is far above ours. If it was up to us and our lofty ideals, we would have hit the reset button in Eden. I mean, he's just an amazingly patient Elohim. This is what I'm getting at. He is infinitely patient, almost infinitely patient. Chapter 5. 14, there has come and will come a time when Yahweh will be seeked, but he will not be found. People will call out to him, and he will not hear. This is the caveat here. Yahweh is patient, but he's not infinitely patient. He's seemingly infinitely patient, but he does. Yahweh has his limits. Eventually, he says, you're on your own. 
He always leaves the way back, though. Chapter 5, verse 14 shows us that Yahweh's patience with the leadership can and will run out. It has before, and it will again. There has come and will come a time when Yahweh will be seeked, but he will not be found. Yahweh can always work with a repentant heart. I don't want this to be a message of no hope, because there's always hope. Ezekiel tells us in chapter 18 that if a wicked man is wicked his entire life, and he turns to righteousness at the end of his life, his wickedness will no longer be remembered. And that's a very hopeful message. But the key is we have to change. You have to change. We cannot continue in sin and expect Yahweh to be waiting for us hand and foot. He wants us to want him as badly as he wants us. And as we know, the world out today, they, they receive these blessings. You see them. They're in these big buildings. They've got hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of members, sometimes all at once in one building. And they're like, look at the blessings we have. But that'll fall away. Yahweh will take that away. He says he will. He will take away the blessings that they have so they can realize who exactly is the one giving these blessings. And it, again, I said it earlier, they will no longer be able to give credit to Baal, which as we know means my Lord, which is just so interesting to me. Yahweh has gleaned good people from every generation. He selects a small remnant to carry his word forth and bring the word to the next generation. Those are the ones he's pining for. He's pining for his people in the world. He's not pining for the world. His people are scattered. And we are, it's our job to bring those people back to Yahweh, as close, that closeness that he wants. Backtracking a little bit in chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, and the pride of Israel doth testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. Judah also shall fall with them. They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek Yahweh, but they shall not find him. He hath withdrawn himself from them. Like all rebellion, Israel's rebellion was centered on pride. And they developed this. This wasn't something that happened overnight. This is something that it, it festered within them for, for years and generations. Because, I mean, look, we, we went from Israel leaving Egypt and the time, that, that sort of environment that Yahweh's pining for with his people to now you have Israel rebelling in such a way that they, just, they don't even think that Yahweh's responsible for the blessings they are receiving. They're willing to give that credit to another mighty one. They shall go to seek Yahweh, but they shall not find him. When Yahweh promised to leave the rebellious Israel alone, he mean, it means that when they make superficial gestures of repentance, they will not find him. Their repentance was superficial because they do not direct their deeds towards turning to Elohim. So they would repent. Oh, yeah, you, you know, you know you've, seen, you've seen people like this in your life where they want forgiveness. Oh, and they just throw themselves at you. Melodramatic. The old uh, Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston. The ladies on the rock. Oh, you know, very melodramatic. But their hearts weren't any, they, they weren't really concerned with what Yahweh wanted. They just wanted, they were outwardly expressing something that wasn't inward. There was nothing there. And Yahweh knew that. He could see right through it. 
So he withdrew himself from them. It happens. And so often, and it happens to us too. It happens to, to us too. It can. We get so set in our ways and in our sin that a lot of times we justify. But Yahweh will just back, back off and just let us sit in it for a while. You know? Sometimes you, like, you made your bed, not lie in it type of thing. Yahweh does that with his people all the time. We often do not even notice until we realize that Yahweh's blessings aren't on us anymore. Because he has to pull those blessings away for you to refocus. When we do not give Yahweh the credit for the work he does, it's easy to ignore him. It's easy to ignore who's providing it. And then before you know it, he's gone. He's just like the Shekinah glory. It's just gone. And all of a sudden, you're left there. And, you, and you, can, you know it when it happens. When you're outside of his good graces, you know it. And that's where this group of people that Yahweh's talking to in Hosea, that's where they're at. They're outside of his good graces. They've taken the blessings that he gave them for them, made this for them. And they just, they just turned around and walked all over him. They walked all over him. The key is repentance. You have to repent and return to the fold of Yahweh beneath the shadow of his wings, that narrow way. I don't think people truly appreciate how small and narrow that way is. It's not so much navigating the way. It's more like a balance beam. There's a very small way that you can walk on comfortably. It's easy to fall off. But praise Yahweh, we have, I guess you'd call it like a GPS to get us back on it. It's not automatic, though. You have to walk that path yourself. Um, I'm not going to continue reading in chapter 5. It goes on warning Israel about these things. I'm going to go ahead and skip to chapter 6. The chapter starts with, uh, Come and let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn. He will heal us. He has struck us. He will bind us up. After two days, he will bring us to life. And on the third day, he will raise us up, and we shall live before him. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to see the parallels to the Messiah here. Jose prayed this full of confidence in Yahweh's love and power to restore. In the prayer, there's obviously the prophecy of Yahshua's resurrection on the third day. The context supports this wonderfully. And, and on the stake, Yahshua was torn and stricken for our sake. Yet he was also raised up on the third day. Verse 3 gives us a peek at the sense of confidence we should have when we are in Yahweh's good graces. So we've talked about being outside Yahweh's good graces and, and what that entails. But it's a whole other ballgame when you're inside Yahweh's good graces. When you know you're on the right path, it's, a, it's completely different. Chapter, th chapter 6, verse 3. Then we shall know, we who follow on to know Yahweh... His going forth is as established as the dawn. He shall come to us as the rain, as the latter and former rain to the earth. We should also know when we desire the knowledge of Yahweh, he blesses it. It has to be more than superficial, though. You know, a lot, and, I, and I'm not speaking ill of, of, of the Jews in Israel, but a lot of what they do is surface deep. The bobbing. The, 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 the little curls and things like that. The, 
they, it's, they've all taken all the surface level things and expounded upon them. All those little details. Do not shave the, the trim the edges of your beard. It's like, oh, okay, so I'm just going to let this grow forever. But they've taken something that's not supposed to be taken inwardly. That's an outward expression of an outward thing. And that's, that's very common. It can't be superficial when we pursue Yahweh. It has to be a true pursuit. And when we endeavor to know Yahweh, especially through his word, he reveals himself to us. He who comes to Elohim must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, as it says in Hebrews um, 11, verse 6. When we know Yahweh, his working becomes established as the dawn, meaning there's no question anymore. Who is giving us those blessings? The option to give it away, the credit away to another mighty one is not available anymore because you know who provides those blessings. It's as established as the morning. As sure as the sun's going to rise tomorrow, not always, you know, that's just a saying. As sure as the sun comes up in the morning, we will know that it is Yahweh that is working in our lives. We can't, we won't be able to give that praise to anybody else. He will come to us like the latter rain like the latter and former rain in Israel as one thing I learned a lot since I started working here is a lot about Israel and agriculture <laughs> kind of I'm kind of surrounded by it for the most of the most of the time I'm here in Israel the only way crops were watered were by rain unless I mean you could water a plant here or there with a bucket but if you had a crop of any sort of size anybody that's got a garden knows that you can't hand water that it's too much By the time you watered one side, the other side would be dry again. So they wait for the farmers waited for the rain with great anticipation. When we anticipate and wait for Yahweh with this kind of earnest expectations, that's when He can work with you. When when you when you expect Yahweh to work in your life because you are earnestly seeking Him, because you are giving credit where credit is due, you have a repentant heart, you have a, a broken spirit that Yahweh can work with. If you anticipate it, it'll come. It'll come. That's the, If you say to this mountain, get up and move, it'll move. There's a poem. My note says in closing, I'm already, ugh, I'm going to slow it down. <laughs> in closing, I found a poem. While it's not, the parallel is not exact, exactly the same. I was reading a commentary, and they, they showed this poem, and it's called From the Idols of King Arthur. Now, an idol, I'm not talking about like a piece of wood. It's like an idol, like an idyllic. It's idyllic. It's uh, I-D-Y-L-L-S. Like a, it's, like a, it's, a, it's a good thing. It's an extremely happy, peaceful, or picturesque episode or scene, typically an idealized or un- unsustainable one. So it's like a... It's like a you know when you have one of those dreams and you're, and you're like flying or something like that? Kind of like that. But in reading the poem, it doesn't really come across that way. I've corrected, I've corrected the names for the sake of uh, ease of reading because it is written in Old English. It describes a man pining for a woman whom he cannot have. He's not able to. It parallels with Hosea and the story of love currently unattainable by Yahweh and his people. So just kind of think about it in that light. Imagine it, Yahweh speaking to Israel. 
Lo, I forgive thee as the eternal Elohim forgives. Do thou for thine own soul the rest. But how to take last leave of all I've loved? I cannot touch thy lips, they are not mine. I cannot take thine hand, that too is flesh. And in the flesh thou hast sinned, and mine own flesh. Here looking down upon thine polluted, cries, I loathe thee, yet not less, O Guinevere. Oh, by the way, it's called Guinevere. Sorry. <laughs> for I was ever a virgin, save for thee. My love through flesh, flesh hath wrought into my life. So far that my doom is, I love thee still. Let no man dream but that I love thee still. Perchance, and so thou purify thy soul. And so thou lean on our fair master, Yeshua. Hereafter, in that world where we are all pure, and we too may meet before Elohim, and thou wilt spring to me and claim me thine, and know that I am your husband and not a smaller soul. Leave me that, I charge thee my last hope. Now I must hence, through the thick night I hear the trumpet blow. And so you can kind of see the parallel to Hosea with Yahweh pining for Israel. The same way in this poem, King Arthur is pining for Guinevere, and he can't. He can't have her. Whoop, getting ahead of myself. And as you can see, I've only touched on the first six chapters of Hosea. It's this, the tip of the iceberg, and we can't forget how pure and clean Yahweh's love is for us and for his people. I mean, he loves us with everything he has. But our continual backsliding make it so that he cannot fully realize and express that love. Imagine Abraham and Isaac. I mean, imagine loving your wife so much that you were willing to sin, that you were willing to take your only child and kill it to save her life. Now, Yahweh stopped Abraham before that happened, but he didn't stop when it was his son on the line. We can't take advantage of this nearly endless patience. It's not endless. We have to dwell on his heart and try to understand how he must feel when we turn away from him. Just like he did with Hosea. He set him in a very uncomfortable situation. Allowed him to fall in love with this woman. Bear children with this woman. And then said, now stop. Just like Yahweh did with his people. His people, they started, you know, after Abraham, they really exploded. And then all of a sudden, guess what? He had to step away from his family because they turned away from him. He's a loving Elohim. And we have, to, we have to realize just how deep his love is for us. I don't think we get it. I think when the time comes and we're standing before him, it'll blow everybody's minds. <laughs> I really do. I don't think, I don't think it'll... I hath not seen or ear hath heard. Those, you know, I think that's very, very true. I don't think anybody has even a slightest inkling of how badly he wants to be with his people. We just got to let him. It sounds easier than it is, but that's really as simple as it is. We just have to let him. We have to do what he says so we can come back to him. We have to love him with all our hearts, minds, and souls. And with that, may God bless. <laughs>